You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Just about three years ago, the Washington Post invited one of the greatest living violinists uh, in our day, Joshua Bell, to play the violin in a subway station in Washington, D.C., and maybe you saw the article in the Washington Post. Joshua Bell, who, who to travel the three blocks from his hotel to this uh, subway station, did not want to walk. He took a cab. Why? Not because he was lazy, but because he needed to care for his violin, a Stradivarius, never having been revarnished since it first came off the master's hand. And this... Um, great performer, stood in the midst of the morning commute for almost an hour. And a thousand people, more than a thousand people passed by him, listening to some of the greatest works of Western civilization played on this violin. And do you know that during that whole time, not once did a crowd form. During that whole time, not as many as seven stood for as little as a minute to hear the music of the master. And one wonders if in the prose of the daily commute and the life that just captures our attention and drives us forward relentlessly, if we also aren't maybe missing the music, the very poetry of life. Well, the writer of Genesis doesn't want us to miss it. The writer of Genesis, whom, by the way, I I take to be with the aid of his sources and editors to be substantially Moses himself. Constructs a work of art, really, of poetry. You look at the book of Genesis, it's tightly structured. It's filled with literary devices like chiasm or parallelism. And there's poetry in it. It begins with poetry. The great prologue that establishes in the first chapter who it is uh, for whom all of this is made and who receives its glory and the intentions of that one to bless and to make life good. And as we come to this story, the beginning of Jacob's life, there is an intrusion of poetics into the prose of its struggle. And so I'd like to note that intrusion with you. It comes in three places, and these will be the heads. uh, First, uh, the heading of a grip. Next, the heading of red stuff. And then finally, poetry itself. Let's begin with a grip. And the lesson here for us is that what I grip is ultimately what grips me. The thing that I reach out and grasp for to hold on to but can't is really the thing that holds on to me, that captures me. And we see the poetry in this grip. Jacob, his personality emerges onto the stage of life even before he does. Right? Because the first thing to be born of Jacob is a hand, a clenched hand wrapped around the heel of his twin brother Esau, who comes out ahead of him. So we meet Jacob in this grip. And in fact, his name means heel, one who grasps the heel, the heel gripper. That's his Identity. Now, the interesting thing about 
the story to this point is that there are two of them in the womb. I mean, when you think about the drama of Abraham's life, it was all about the question, would there be a child to such an aged couple of Abraham and Sarah to bear the promise of great destiny? Would there be a child? And that child, of course, is Isaac. He's the child of promise. And here he is now in the very next generation. And the question isn't, would there be a child? In the the irony of life, there are twins. Two children in the womb. Two boys. And these two boys are wrestling or crushing against each other in the womb. Like two airline passengers rushing for the last overhead bin with their wheelies, thinking, my storage is empty and there's somebody else. (laughs) You know, it's almost like John the Baptist in utero in Elizabeth's womb, who when the mother of Jesus, Mary, walks by and speaks, that voice makes him leap within because he knows in the sound of that call that there is a great destiny about life about his life. And so these two have a sense that outside of this dark womb, there is a destiny, there is a life calling for them. And they wrestle in eagerness to be the first one to lay hold of it. But it's not Jacob. No, it's it's Esau. And we're reminded that for all of us, there's always another person in front of us. There's always someone else's heel in our face. I I like the way Craig Barnes says, you know, this is very much just the nature of twins. Twins, there's always another person who lives the life that you could be living. And it's usually somebody who lives it better than you. Think of the relative advantage of Esau over Jacob. There are three things, really. The first is strength, Esau. He's a hunter. He's a man of the field. He's a warrior. And a warrior in that day is equivalent today to someone who has power. That's what he is. When Jacob looks at Esau, he sees a man with power. And he's hungry for it. When Jacob looks at Esau, he also sees the firstborn. It's not fair. They're twins. And yet he makes it out first. And you know what a firstborn uh, is like. A firstborn carries the destiny of the family. Let me hear an amen. Come on. Right? The firstborn. And, of course, in the ancient world, this to do with inheritance, being the spokesperson for the family and being able to inherit the family's wealth. And, friends, this is a rich family. Abraham is blessed by God, and that blessing continues to accumulate. And these boys will discover the richness of that inheritance. And it belongs not to Jacob, but to Esau. There's somebody else ahead of Jacob. There's an Esau in his life who not only has power, wealth, but he also has much more importantly, the love of his father. So we find out Isaac will love Esau because Isaac loves red meat. For such a superficial reason as that, Jacob will go through his life yearning for the significance, the place in life that only a father's blessing can give. There's somebody in your life as well who lives the life that you want to live, only better. An Esau who got into the right school or who has the right Rolodex or has the beauty or the health that if you had, you would know exactly what to do with. You would be able to fulfill the destiny of your life and you just know it. And so we grasp 
for that other person. And yet the irony is that in a grip, we see not only that we will never be able to hold on to that, but we will also lose a grip on who we are. For our whole life would be characterized by reaching out to someone to be someone whom we are not. And, and, and Jacob's life is characterized by the name Jacob, heel gripper. He's characterized by what he isn't, not by what he has. It is, and this is not the way it should be, because the oracle tells his mother, Rebecca, that there are two great nations in this womb. Two great peoples, both of whom will be blessed if we've been reading the story of Genesis all along. We, we have seen that God has promised a great promise to Abraham. You will be blessed, a nation like the stars. And the purpose of that nation is to bless all other nations. So the only question, and the poetry here is wonderfully ambiguous, who is greater, who will be first, is, is simply which nation will be blessed to be a blessing and which other blessing nation will be blessed because of the blessing. And yet, because of these two twins crushing against one another, the aspiration to be someone that they are not, the history of this family and its legacy will be filled with conflict. Conflict that never should have been. A grip. What I grip is ultimately what grips me. The second poetic uh, recharacterization of the prose narrative of life comes from this narrative, narrator in the red stuff. The red stuff. And here I think the lesson for us is that my disappointment in life can very well color my perceptions. My disappointment colors my perception. Let me read the second scene of our text. It starts in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau. Because Isaac was fond of game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff. And by the way, in the Hebrew, I don't know if it's a stutter or just sloppiness on Esau's part. He repeats that phrase red stuff twice. It's red stuff, red stuff. Give me some of that. For I am famished, he says. Therefore, he was called Edom. Which it's, it's a reference to red. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, no, swear to me first. So Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Red stuff. The, the, the reach into somebody else's life to be someone whom I'm not leads these two men to a bowl of soup. And, and, and you say, really? It's all about stew? 
you have to understand how the Israelite would hear this story. This is a story that just freezes time and space and drama and suspense. Because, you see, they know the significance of these two men. They understand from the names, one is Jacob to be Israel, and the other is Edom Red to be Edom, the nation of Edom, which locates in Seir or Harry. And they know very well the first generation that as the Israelites came out of Egypt, rescued at the hand of God for a great salvation, it was Edom who stood at the door to Canaan and said, you will not pass. And they know very well in the time of David of the conquest that goes back and forth between these two nations, the war and the devastation and the horror of it. And they know by the time of the exile that when the Babylonians came knocking on the door of Jerusalem to raise it to the ground, it would be the Edomites who would side against Israel in the fall of Jerusalem. And they see this is the moment when history decides which nation will be blessed. And it's a bowl of soup, red stuff. What could be the meaning of this? How does something so small take on such great importance? I think the hint is in the color. In the color red, actually. You see, I don't know about you, have you ever had a bowl of red lentil stew? I never had, and I thought, well, maybe it's just because I missed that experience when I was in the Middle East. Maybe lentils somewhere else are red. No, truth is, they're not. Uh, the truth is, Middle Eastern lentils are like our lentils, like green or yellow or orange. The Hebrew word for red has a broader range of meaning than our word for red. And so it was red stew in Hebrew speak. And yet the reason the stew is red in this story has nothing to do with the color of lentils. And it has everything to do with the color of Esau. Esau is the one that makes the stew red, you see. Because Esau represents to us loss. There's even loss for Esau. This great hunter comes back from the field. The narrator is wonderfully scant with the detail, but the imagination could see. Maybe he's been gone for many days on end and it appears he's hungry. Apparently, he hasn't caught a thing. He comes back famished and weak. And he fears he's going to lose his life. We call that anticipatory grief. Uh, on the other end of the transaction stands Jacob, who looks at that stew and looks across it at his brother, now a grown man. And Jacob sees what his life could have been, and it's gone to him. It's gone. All of his hopes and dreams in this man. I, I will never have the power that he has. I will never have the wealth that he has. I will never have a father's love and blessing because of him. And so these two negotiate their grief over a bowl of stew. You go, really? How can something so small take on such significance in our lives? And the answer is, of course, grief. Loss compounds. And then it comes out around the smallest of things. I can can remember uh, Ann and I, my wife, we went on a date night one time, you know, and we went out this was a few years ago. We went out to, I don't know, it was dinner or a restaurant or whatever. And we're coming back and um, driving home, and we have a fight. It's not unusual for us. We have an argument. And uh, she was right. I'm just going to say that right off. But the interesting thing <laughs> is we don't remember what it was about. But it was a huge fight. I mean, she looked at me, just fed up with me, and she said, pull the car over. 
I'm going to walk home. I said, you can't walk home. She said, pull the car over. I pulled the car over. She opened the door and got out. I couldn't believe it. And I drove the remaining 100 yards back to my home. (laughs) Up the driveway. And I sat there and waited, hoping she would catch me. Because I had noticed that the babysitter was in the window. Now... This was an awkward moment because I was a campus minister and she was one of the students in my ministry, which meant I was a role model for her. And I could only wait so long before she would wonder what were they doing in the car. Well, the answer is there was no they, and I sheepishly opened the door and it was just me. And she looked at me and said, how was your evening? (laughs) And I said it was fine. Where's Anne? Oh, she'll be along. And, And she was, thankfully. Um, but, but, but neither of us can remember what that argument was about. I asked Ann about it yesterday. She said, well, I, I remember my billfold was my lap, and I think maybe it had to do with which currency we were going to use, a 20 or a couple of 10s. So you're kidding me! Well, the argument wasn't about currency. The argument was about the loss that we felt in our relationship, not being heard, of not having the kind of marriage that we wanted to have not having the kind of evening that we go. And and all of these experiences of disappointment had snowballed and attached themselves to the smallest of symbols. One wonders if this isn't what happened to the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Because if you've read a couple chapters earlier, you see that Isaac and Rebekah had a storybook beginning to their wedding. I mean, God literally brought these two together with signs and wonders. And it was a beautiful, warm beginning. And yet now look at them. They've divided their parental loyalties against one another. In two chapters from now, we're going to see them scheming and plotting, listening in. Trust is absolutely gone. How does that happen in a marriage? I I have a theory about this. It's just a theory, but notice that the first scene is bracketed by a period of 20 years. 20 years before, between their marriage and experience of barrenness and the birth of these two boys. The text tells us in verse 21 that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Uh, but uh, that's a reasonable translation. But you, you could also render it, the, the, a more literal translation would be Isaac prayed to the Lord in front of his wife. And Rashi, the French rabbi, the medieval French rabbi, comments on this text. He said it was as though she was in one corner and he was in the opposite corner. And perhaps she understood his prayers to be the prayers of a loving husband day after day, year after year. But with time, as the pain of her barrenness began to bring great disappointment into their marriage, she began to hear those as articulations of disappointment and rejection. It's just a theory, but a very small thing can color our perception of everything else. And they move gradually apart. So that by the time Rebecca has this traumatic pregnancy, this prenatal conflict within her, it is enough, this little thing is enough for her to say in verse 22, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Which is an important question. And I appreciate the intellectual honesty she has to ask the question. This is the question that Albert Camus, the French existentialist philosopher, asks himself in all integrity. I have answered many questions, he writes in the myth of Sisyphus, except for one. 
and that is the question of suicide. If life is utterly meaningless, why do not I take my own life? Why live? He and Rebecca both ask. But the text gives us an answer. The text draws us our attention to the poetry of God's grace. And here is the third point, finally, that the poetry uh, tells us that God's grace blesses our life. Notice that she asks this question of the Lord. She goes to inquire and seeks an oracle, and the Lord speaks to her. He's gracious enough to give her answer, and the answer comes in poetry. This and only this in this text. Uh, the indentation in your Bible will tell you that this is nearly a song, a hymn. In the ancient truths, the great truths are carried better in poetry. They're held better in our memory. We'll long since forget the prose of life, but, but it's the poetry that sticks. And as though we reach back now into ancient generations long since forgotten, we hear the grace of God who wants to bless his creatures bursting forth for Rebecca and for us. Isn't the blessing lost through all the gripping and the grief? No. There is, as C.S. Lewis might call it, a deeper magic. There is a principle of grace at work. We read these texts in Genesis and we keep scanning. I read commentaries this week and everybody wants to know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Is it Jacob? Is it Esau? Is it Isaac? Is it Rebekah? The answer is they're all good and they're all bad. The hero of this story is God, the one who speaks his promise. There's a sacred promise that hangs over and breaks into the life of every single human being. And his name is Jesus Christ the living word of God. The patriarchs will fall. Jacob will fall. Israel itself will fall. But there will one day come along one who realizes grace and truth, who will fulfill the promises of Israel in his own life, Jesus himself. And so Paul breaks into poetry. He sees in the Philippian church, that early first century church that is the model of our own existence, yes, conflict and disappointment. Surprise, surprise. That's part of the Christian life. And he speaks a word of poetry into it. He recalls a sacred hymn of Jesus Christ, who was not a grasper. He would not grasp equality with God. And he entered into grief and pain and sorrow. The grief of a servant. The grief of one who has died. And because of that, God blesses him through resurrection life and rises him above every other name and then speaks a blessing into his life so that that same son, Jesus Christ, can bless your life and bless mine. This is what makes us free, God's grace. And so at the end of his life, Isaac will finally appreciate this. Uh, Jacob, by the way. He, 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 will, he, will, he will bless his sons at the end of the book of Genesis. That's the way it ends, with a blessing, ironically, that he will give. And he sets it up by saying... You know, it's not the blessing of my father. It's not the blessing of other people in whose image I wished I, I could have been made. It's the blessing of God himself. And so he'll reach out and he'll speak these words. And I close with them. May they be a benediction on your life and mine as well. The God before whom my ancestors, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life. To this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be perpetuated. 
and the name of my ancestors, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude on earth. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we hear in these words the music of heaven by which our lives are to be lived. Grant us grace enough to pause today to break the steady flow of prose that otherwise characterizes our lives, to hear that music, to be taken in by its poetics, and to be woken up by the poetry of the God who loves us and sent his son Jesus Christ to rise for us, and to allow those lyrics to change us and to make our day and our week and all of eternity different. Because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.